0: God inhabits the praises of his people. I I listened to a sermon this morning by Kent Ham, and he was talking about worship music and how it has become so corrupt in most churches where you have the worship band and you have an audience, and they put on a performance, and you sit and you listen, and that's not what I experienced this morning. Uh, This is our worship team, all 50 of us or 60 of us. This is our worship choir. Um, Praise God. Um, God's at work. I've heard um, just three confessions this week. I'm not a priest, (laughs) and I didn't give any absolutions, (laughs) but we are to confess our sin one to another, one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed, and God's been doing some healing at North Valley Bible Church because of humble confession to one another and praying for one another, and this is not a perfect church, but it's a good place to be. The men's fellowship yesterday um, was was precious. Uh, you don't talk about men's meetings being precious very often. <laughs> it was powerful too. Um, I thank God for that group of men that um, come and sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. So that's my my testimony. Anybody else have something? Yes, Jordan. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 4, and we're going to read 1 through 12. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who does not work, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes The blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcision only Or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only, to those not who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You may be seated. I have a, just a quick announcement to make and an encouragement also. Um, I know a lot of you are busy on a Sunday morning, and it's hard to get here at 9 o'clock. No, we don't get here at 9 o'clock. <laughs> 10 o'clock. But um, Rick, is, Rick Quinn is starting a new series on the end times. And praise the Lord, we ran out of books this morning. We had 25 books, and all of those were were distributed, so that's a a praise. But I want Rick just to make a quick announcement about what the book is and how to use it, and a companion book that's coming in about a week so he can know how many to order um, because all the books are gone. And so even if you can't come, this would be a great resource for your library. So Rick, will you just share that? Well, hopefully um, you've been following along week by week through the book of Romans, and if you haven't, sometimes it's difficult to get in midstream, so um, we do have a few visitors this morning, so I'm just going to take a couple of minutes just to share with you where we've come from, from Romans chapter 1 to this point, um, to fill in those blanks, so In chapter 4, he asks the question, what shall we say then that our father Abraham found? And the reason he's asking that question is because Abraham is the patriarch of the Jewish nation Israel, and the Israelites are asking a lot of questions concerning their Messiah and concerning Gentiles. They were God's chosen people. The covenants were made with Abraham and his descendants. They were ambassadors of God's message and God's Messiah. And now many, many Gentiles are coming into this faith about their message and about their Messiah. And they're wondering, what about all of the good deeds that we have done? What about us being stewards and custodians of God's special revelation doesn't that count for something don't we get preferential treatment in God's eyes and Paul has been explaining very meticulously that there is no partiality that he's not just the God of the Jewish people he's God of the Gentiles also and that God justifies all people only in one way and that is faith in Christ's finished work alone. And he explains how all mankind, Jew and Gentile, is completely without any excuse. If this morning you don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you have no excuse. Especially if you've been coming to church regularly. I'm not trying to force anybody to make a decision. That's the Holy Spirit's job. I am persuading, though. That's what Paul did. He said, I know the fear of the Lord. Therefore, I persuade men. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So Paul knew that, and so he persuaded people. And he was adamant that you have no excuse. And creation is probably the number one argument that he used. I, I listened to a sermon this morning, actually, About creation. It was Ken Ham. It was a great sermon. But he said, We are not living in a generation where people understand the Bible, but people understand creation. People understand science. And they are trying to hush the reality that our world did not evolve by accident. They're trying to silence any argument. In fact, if you are a credible scientist at any university and you even mention the name or the thought of an intelligent designer, you could lose your job. That's how biased they are. But when they discovered DNA, they knew it was a language, and any time there's a language that implies intelligence behind it, when any time that you see a gene pool that allows for microevolution for things to adapt yet stay within a kind it all it does is demonstrate the authority of God's word and so paul says all we have to do is look at creation we understand god's invisible attributes that he is all powerful that he's all loving and that god is gracious and good and then he goes to the conscience of man. We are designed with a conscience. God created us in His image. We are moral beings. We know intuitively right from wrong when we come to that age of accountability. And so Paul says because of our conscience, we are without excuse. And you might say, well, I've done all these good things and when I stand before God, I want to stack up all my good deeds. And God says... I'm a just judge. I don't know anybody who's gone into speeding court. Brendan. (laughs) (laughs) And says, judge, that police officer just happened to catch me going a little bit too fast. Because 99% of the time, I go the speed limit. Oh, that's all you had to say. Dismissed. Don't pay that fine. It doesn't work that way, does it? And it doesn't work that way with God. He's going to bring our deeds and we will be judged. And so Paul has been meticulously working through this that you and I have absolutely no righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none good. There is none who seeks after God. You say, well, wait a minute. I came to church this morning. I'm seeking God. And that that's true. There's a balance here. When Paul says no one seeks God, what he means is that no one will seek God of his own initiative. John 6.44 says, Unless the Father draws them, no one will come to me. But I'm convinced that God is in the business of drawing all people to himself. Amen. He says in Acts chapter 17 that God has pre-appointed our boundaries and our times that men should seek the Lord. God has put limits on how long we're going to live and he puts limits on where we're going to live. He saw it at the Tower of Babel and he says, we're not going to operate this way. I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to define your boundaries and I'm going to define how long you can live because I have placed eternity in man's heart. And so now Paul, after he's done all of this theology, he gets to chapter 3 and he says, that's why it's got to be faith alone because none of us can stand up to the law. It is a straight measuring stick. And all of us have scoliosis spiritually. He says, it has to be by faith. In fact, the Old Testament witnessed it has to be by faith. The prophets witnessed that it has to be by faith. It has never been by good works. And so the Jew says, well, what about Abraham? The rabbis in the first century taught that Abraham was justified by works, that Abraham was a virtuous man who kept all of God's statutes and God's commandments. The rabbis also taught at the time of Christ that a circumcised man would never go to hell. And Paul has taught, your circumcision means absolutely nothing. In fact, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision When you break the law and the uncircumcised Gentile who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and now has the law working out of his heart, his uncircumcision becomes circumcision to him. And so the natural question that Paul intercepts here, and this is an interesting thing in the book of Romans. Paul, all through this book, is working with an interlocutor who's asking these questions of him and trying to argue with him, and Paul is giving every reason why their arguments fail and why their arguments fail with Abraham. And we see that again in chapter 4. Every culture... Every religious people or non-religious people, they have tried to find peace apart from faith in God. That's the source of every religion, and that's the source of all debauchery. People are trying to find something outside of Jesus Christ, and there is nothing. And that's why they hate Christianity, Because we dare to say that Jesus Christ is the only way to God because he was God in human flesh and God took all of our sin on the cross and he nailed it there. And he proved that he can save you by raising himself from the dead on the third day. Either we bury the divine under self-indulgence Or we make some complex system of religious rites and rituals and traditions. How simple is the gospel? How beautiful is the gospel? How complete is the gospel? You are complete, Colossians 2.10, in Jesus Christ. Everything that you ever longed for, everything that you ever hoped for, is found when you find Jesus, the simple truth of God's love. On the other extreme, the Hindu religion and Muslim religion and every other religion, that is to say, has all these intricate workings that you never know if you have done enough to please God. The Hindus have a festival called Marakum Mala. I probably massacred that. It's celebrated every 12 years. It's probably the world's largest religious event. Millions of devotees flock to the river Ganges and the river Yamuna, led by religious gurus who are called Farkis. I don't know. Well, these naked dudes, (laughs) what they do is they, they lay down on these beds of nails. Or they walk across hot beds of coal, broken metal, sharp glass, trying to appease their God. Worshippers will take knives and pierce through their tongues in order to make a vow of silence to appease the myriad of gods that they have. Some of them will stare at the sun perpetually until it burns their retina so that they think that they can close out the world of sin and temptation only to find out that sin originates in the heart. These gods that they try to appease, they live in dread and fear of. Others will protract their arms Raised up in praise to the myriad of gods, literally until their atrophy of their muscles and they can no longer retract their arm. The river banks are lined with these shaving booths, where people will come to the water to wash, but they will shave every hair of their body, including their eyebrows, their eyelashes, To throw them into the river, and they are promised for every hair that hits this water, you gain a million years in paradise. What sad religious extremes that people will go to, and how silly it may seem. Just come to Jesus, and you will find life. That's the beauty of the gospel. The way is for all people. And God meets you right where you are at this morning. And this blessedness, it wasn't just for Abraham. This blessedness is for you and I. This morning, as I got up and I began to review the sermon, I thought, where am I going to find the application in this passage? And then it dawned on me. This entire passage is application. When you get over to chapter 4 and verse 23, we read these these words. Now, it was not written for his sake alone. This wasn't just written for Abraham. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. This is the beauty of the Bible. It is God communicating with you and I. It wasn't just written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in the name of him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. It was written for us. We're to apply this. We're to live this. We are to have this blessed life that God intended. Circumcision had had become nothing more than just a rubber stamp at the time of Christ. Rabbis taught that no circumcised man would ever go to hell. It also taught that the father Abraham sat at the gate of hell to prevent any circumcised man from entering. These beliefs so influenced the early church that Jesus often butted heads with these religious leaders, because they prided themselves in being sons of Abraham. And Jesus said in John chapter 8, he says, I know you're Abraham's seed, but you're not doing the works of Abraham. If you are doing the works of Abraham, you would love me but you are doing the works of your father. And they retorted back and they said, we have but one father and that is Abraham. And we have but one father and that is God. We weren't born of fornication, implying that they knew that there was something mysterious about the birth of Jesus. And then Jesus replied to them, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. Well, what was that day that Abraham saw? Abraham, were told in Hebrews chapter 11, that Abraham saw the days of faith and he embraced those promises as far off, but yet he claimed them for his own because he knew that Isaac had nothing to do with his own strength. Isaac had nothing to do with his own ingenuity. Isaac had nothing to do with his religiosity. It had everything to do with the power of God And the miracle of God. And he was so sure of the power of God and the miracle of God that when he was told to offer up Isaac on the altar, he knew that God had given him, in a figurative sense, from the dead. A 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman who couldn't have children. And if God could do that, I have enough faith that if I lay this child down, God has given me a promise that the entire world is going to be blessed through the seed of this child, Isaac. God has got to raise him from the dead. That is faith. That is the power of Abraham. And if they were Abraham's children, they would have known that. And so the Jews had this strange idea that law-keeping plus Jesus was enough. And so certain men came together in Judea, and they taught the brethren, unless you be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, so they went up to discuss this at Jerusalem. And after Paul told what God was doing among the Gentiles and how he's miraculously saving, there arose a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, it is needful for them to be circumcised. And this is the religious background for the book of Romans. So when we come to chapter 4, Paul purposely picks out Abraham as the exemplar for all the Jewish people and so we pick it up here and it says what then shall we say and so he's referring back to Abraham since Paul said there is absolutely no boasting 327 it's excluded 328 we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the law and then in 3.31, 3.31, we then make the, the, the law void through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. And so Paul now answers that question that he knew that his interlocker was thinking of. Well, what about Abraham? So he says, what shall we say about Abraham? So let's go to him for an example. What did Abraham find? So let's look at that passage together. What has Abraham our father found according to the flesh. Every one of those words are significant. The word father is pro patras. Our forebearer. Our progenitor. The one who started the Hebrew race. Abraham was called the Hebrew for the first time when he was traveling into Egypt. He was the one who was crossing over. Who was our father? Who was our progenitor? What has he found? Have you ever heard, my mom used to say this all the time, because I was losing everything all the time. Yeah, I mean, I lost, I still do, <laughs> billfold, keys. This morning I was hunting around for the church keys. Every, every birthday the kids get me these find it, click it things, you know, that will ring. <laughs> but my, when I would be hunting for something, my mom would always say, Eureka, I didn't know what she meant. She knew Greek. It's a Greek word that means I found it. And that's the word that's used here. What did Abraham find? What did he discover? What was he looking for? What did he come up with? What did, what did God reveal to Abraham? Eureka, Abraham, you got it. The word literally means to find out, to learn, to gain by experience or practice. What did Abraham discover by practice? He learned the hard way, didn't he? He had to learn to trust God and not his own wisdom. He would go down to Egypt. And what would Abraham do according to the flesh? He would lie about Sarah every time. And what would God do every time? God would intervene. The the Pharaoh's wives couldn't have children. And then he would give them a dream. And then Abraham would get rebuked by a pagan. What was he finding out? God I can trust you. I don't have to come up with these elaborate schemes. That's what he found out according to his flesh. In Genesis chapter 15, he says, look at all this, Abraham, it's yours. You know what Abraham says? He says, but you haven't given me any heir. And the one born in my house, Eliezer, he's going to get all the inheritance. God says, no, Abraham, you're finding that according to your flesh. I'm going to give you from your own body and from Sarah's womb a child. And when that didn't happen quick enough, they came up with another plan according to the flesh. We all know the story, and it didn't work out too good, did it? Ishmael was born. That's what Abraham discovered. And what Abraham found out when he walked out on that starry night, and he looked up into heavens, and God said, that's what your offspring is going to be. At that moment, Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's what Abraham discovered. And now we've got the word for twice to support Paul's thesis. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, it starts with the word for, and then, at least if you've got a good translation, like a King James or New King James or... New American Standard, I'm an advocate of those translations. But anyway, it starts with the word for, and then you get down to verse 3, and it starts with the word for. So he's explaining, he's giving his argument here, his support. His first for, with the word if, is a hypothetical. It's a conditional statement. In the original language, it would be called a first-class condition. It's assumed to be true. So Paul is doing this merely for the sake of argument. So he's, what he's saying is, that let's just suppose for a minute that what you're saying is true. If Abraham did find righteousness and justified by his works, then he has something to boast about. But he can't boast before God. Now, how can we prove that? Again, let's go to the text, the word for. So he appeals to this hypothetical situation. Let's assume that it's true. Abraham would have had ground for boasting, yet not before God. There's absolutely no account. This is what Paul's driving at. There is no account anywhere in the Old Testament where Abraham ever boasted before anybody. He would have had grounds. You show me anywhere in the record where Abraham ever boasted about his righteousness, and you cannot find a verse to support it. That's Paul's argument. And then he quotes scripture. This is Paul's authority, and here's where we can apply this for our lives. Our authority rests on the word of God. This morning, you can know that you have eternal life. First John says, I have written these things to you that you may know that you have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. That's our authority. Because He lives, you will live also. That is our authority. That is our great hope. It is found in God's inerrant inspired message. And Paul uses that in verse verse 3 for what does the Scripture say? Now he knew a Jew had to come to grips with Scripture. And that's why he's using this. Jesus said this, the Scripture cannot be broken. He said that in reference to calling himself God. So let's, let's go on. His next argument is found in a couplet of pairs. I guess that's kind of redundant, a couple of couplet of pairs. I don't know. <laughs> don't... Anyway, <laughs> Caleb, is he here? Yeah, he is. When you had the jitters, usually, this is a totally rabbit trail. I don't have good illustrations in my preaching. I've got to confess that. I just don't have time to search for illustrations. <laughs> I, I have enough time, enough trouble in the Word of God. But I want to just kind of give you a break from listening to me and my droning. This morning, I got up, and I always make my wife a cup of tea. Not always. She's not here. She would catch me out. She's probably going to listen to this, so I got to be honest. I sometimes make her a cup of tea. But when I do, I'll take that tea bag and I will put it in another cup after most of it's drained out and I'll make myself a cup of tea really, really weak because I'm hypersensitive to caffeine. Well, she wasn't here this morning. So I got a full dose this morning, Rick. <laughs> oh. So so these pairs, I wish I could put the Greek text up on the board for you and have Elizabeth come up and explain it. (laughs) She said, no, no, no. I've forgotten. I bet you haven't forgotten a lot of it. But anyway, I've got a couple other scholars here. Brendan's looking out the window now. He said, don't call on me. Um, But if you... If you had the original text, you could see this so clearly. I don't have it up there. I don't know why I keep looking over there. But I'll, I'll try to explain it to you the best I can. So both of these sentences start out with the indirect object, which is really, really strange English. Because you can do that in the Greek language because the indirect object is found in a different case from the subject. And so both of these sentences start out with a direct article in a case that indicates it's in the indirect object. The next word in both verses 4 and 5 is the word but. Now in our translation, in my translation, verse 4 starts out with the word now. But the Greek word de can be translated but... It can be translated now, or it can be translated even. But there's parallelism in Paul's writing here that you can't see in the English Bible. And then we have a participle that's also in the indirect form, and the participle is used as a noun. So let's look at it together. Now, and here is the participle, to him. That's how we know it's the Indirect object. The indirect object answers the question to whom or for whom. It's to who. It's to him. To him who does what? To him who, where am I at? (laughs) To what? To him who works. And then we get down to verse five, but to him who does not work. So you see the parallelism that Paul is drawing here? So this is a couplet. And these couplets are mutual exclusive. Either you've got to do it by works or you have got to do it by faith. And both of them have their ramifications. If it's by works, then you can boast. If it's by works, you get exactly what you deserve. If it's by faith... It's trusting God alone. And if it's by faith, then it's by grace. It's not a debt. It's not something that you deserved. And it's either one or the other. So Paul's third argument here, one, the argument, well, what did Abraham discover in his flesh? The second argument is what does scripture say? And the third argument is this parallelism that's naturally exclusive. Either you get wages They are not accounted, that's verse 4, or you get faith that is accounted for something. It's to him who works or to him who does not work. The one who works, it's a debt. The one who believes, it's grace. And he who believes, and who is the one who he believes? Who? who, (laughs) Let me slow down here. Okay, caffeine, get out of me. I'm going to sweat it out. Verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. That's the one who is justified until we see our need. And that's what Paul has been doing verse by verse, chapter by chapter, showing us that we are ungodly. And unless we ever get to that point, we never come to Jesus. One more thing that I want to point out is this word in the original language that was an economic word. It was a word that an accountant would have used. A man that would have been balancing ledgers or somebody that would look and balance the books. And it's translated three different ways in this passage, but it's used eight times. One of the ways that it's translated is is reckoned. And that's not a good old southern term. I remember I was at Tennessee Temple in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and a professor called on me, and he said, Mr. Cross, what's your answer? And I said, I reckon he was fixin' to do such and such. (laughs) I'd lived in the South too long. He says, I'll let you get away with reckon, but fixin', that's something your mama does in the kitchen," <laughs> he says. "That don't work. That was a—I uh, remember that. He was my Hebrew professor. Good man. Um, anyway, another story, huh? So let's, let's look at the word to reckon. It's also translated to account. It's also traced to count, to count, and it's also translated imputed. This passage is filled with that. Five times it's accounted, reckoned, imputed, or to count up. So this is an important theological term for us to understand. To account means to calculate. It means to compute. It means to place in someone else's credit as their account. Man, don't you love it when you open up your Venmo and there's all of a sudden this money in your account and you don't know where it came from? That's grace. And that's what God has done to you and I. And that's what Abraham discovered. And this is for you and I to apply to our lives. This is the very heart of God, graciously taking mankind's faith and putting righteousness to our account. Faith is not something that merits our forgiveness. Faith is the channel by which God's Infinite resources flow. And that's not just for saving. That is for living. By faith, we can reach God. It tells us in Romans chapter five, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and produces, perseverance produces hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost that he's given to us. That's what faith, is a channel for all of God's goodness, all of God's resources. And this blessedness, David also wrote about it. So Paul is picking out two key Hebrew patriarchs to shut down all the arguments against justification by faith alone. And what did David write, verses 5 through 8? Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man whom God, and here's that, logizomai, that Greek word, imputes, calculates, reckons, puts it to his account. What does he do? Righteousness. And how does he do it? And when does he do it? He does it apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and to whose sins are covered Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute, count up, calculate all the sin in our life. This is the interesting thing. Abraham lived 400 years before the law. David lived 400 after the law, and they have the exact same conclusion. God has to impute righteousness to us. Blessed is... What does that word mean, blessed? So we've observed it. Now let's define it. What does it mean to be blessed? Blessed has nothing to do with your bank account. It has nothing to do with your health. I don't care what these other preachers are telling you. That is not blessedness. Blessedness is a spiritual state that you are in harmony and that you are one with your creator. You cannot get more blessed than that. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Blessed be God our Father, even of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Where? In Christ Jesus You get everything, all of God's blessing. And God's blessings are spiritual. Sins forgiven, iniquities covered, righteousness put into your account. That is the blessedness that David talked about. And that's what you and I have. The second point this morning is this blessing is meant for all of us to experience every day. Verses 9 through 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcised also? All the blessedness that Abraham experienced, all the blessedness that David experienced, was that just meant for the Jewish people? No, it wasn't. It was meant for you and I, wasn't it? And that's the blessedness that he's talking about, this blessedness. That pronoun, this, it's referring back to everything that he described. This blessedness, it belongs to us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 5, and I'll quote it for you. The one who supplies the Spirit, the one who works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. A rhetorical question. How does God supply you and I with the Holy Spirit? How does God work mighty miracles among us? Is it because we merit them, because we work hard enough, or is it because of faith? It is by faith only, and the Galatians knew that. Just as Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness know then that those who are of faith they are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith he preached the gospel before to Abraham saying in you shall all the nations be blessed so then those who are of faith we are blessed along with the believing Abraham his next question is found in verse 10 How then was it accounted? The how also could be translated when. When did this happen? How did God do it? And so he asked another question to get them thinking and to get us thinking this morning. Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? You see, that makes all the difference. Did Abraham do anything? When was it reckoned to him? It was reckoned to him in Genesis 15.6. 15.6. Abraham had Ishmael at the age of 86. Then we fast forward to chapter 17 of Genesis. Abraham now is 99 years old. So at least 14 years have transpired from the time that he was 86. Until he, or, or before that, when God promised him the, the, the child, when it was imputed to him for righteousness, Abraham received the sign of the covenant at the age of ninety-nine. So his question is driving it home to them. Ishmael was probably circumcised. In fact, we don't not probably we know exactly how old he was. Genesis seventeen. And verse 25 says he was 13 years old. So when was Abraham imputed with righteousness? It had nothing to do with circumcision. Had nothing to do with what he deserved. Nothing what he did to, to merit, to, to merit it. While he was inc- circumcised or uncircumcised. Not while he was circumcised, but while he was uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision. That's all it was. It was simply a sign. It was a seal. This is what God does. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you are immediately imputed with righteousness. And what does God do to guarantee that to you? He seals you by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 Until the day of redemption. You don't have to work for that. God gives it to authenticate what is genuine and what is real. That's what a seal was used for in the ancient Near East. You put a seal on something and it defined it as real and legitimate. We do the same thing when we have something notarized. Now, it doesn't make that document any more authentic. It simply tells everyone else that this thing is the real deal. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you get the real deal. And God then puts the seal of the Holy Spirit on your life. So we have absolute confidence. God confirms it and guarantees it. And why does he do that? Let's look at the text and it will tell us why. We look at the word that and it will tell us why. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness which is by faith. While yet uncircumcised, and here's the first reason or result, in order that he, Abraham, might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. This is for everyone. All of this blessedness that he's been talking about in verses 1 through 7. He does it so you and I know that we have the same inheritance. We have the same God who's regenerated us. The second that, let's keep reading and we'll see the next that. In the rest of verse 11, I can find my place here. That he might be father of all those who believe through though they are uncircumcised. Here's the next that, that righteousness might be, and here's that same word, Imputed to them also. Now verse 12 is an interesting verse. And the father of circumcision. God has broken down every wall, every barrier. There are no class distinctions in God's economy. The uncircumcised, yes, they've got it. And he's also the father of the circumcision. But then he he narrows that down. It's not all circumcised. He's also the father of the circumcision. Look at who it's for. It's to those who not only are of circumcision. It's never a physical thing. It's never a religiosity. It's never a rite. It's never a ritual. God wants us to know him. He wants us to have a relationship with him. He wants us to experience him. That's what Abraham found. That's what he discovered. That's what he practiced. That's what he lived. Abraham was called the friend of God. And it's not just for those who are physically circumcised only, but those who also walk. And it's an interesting word for walk. It's a military term to mean marching right behind somebody else. You line yourself up with Abraham, and all of those blessings are yours. So application this morning, we could be here all day, but I'm going to quickly summarize it. God wants us to discover. God wants us to have that Eureka, I found it moment in our own lives that spirituality is something that we practice. It's something that we experience by entering into a living relationship with God. You'll pick up this Bible and it will be God's breath It will be God's word to your soul. And that's what God wants for us. The Bible, secondly, is called Scripture. It is our ultimate authority, not creeds, not somebody's doctrinal statements, not a confession, not a tradition of your church. Thirdly, God operates on the basis of grace and faith. What a wonderful message this morning. You know how you can have confidence in your Christian life? You give it all to Jesus even when you don't deserve it. Because if you are waiting until you feel like you've had a good day or you've had a good moment, you may never come. And that's how we can live the Christian life because God operates on the basis of grace and faith. Four, true blessings, they are spiritual of nature, not physical nor material. Now, God can do that and God often does that. Don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for the physical blessings that God has given me and the material blessings that God has given me. But if God stripped them away, would I be just as blessed if I know Jesus? Amen. Number five, by following the teachings of Jesus and keeping his ordinances, we are conforming outwardly, and the power is working inwardly to transform. And that's what he's telling these Jews In verse 12, I want you to follow the teachings explicitly. I want you to follow the doctrines of Abraham explicitly. I want you to conform not just outwardly to circumcision, but I want you to have this inward transformation of the heart. So those are just a few of the things this morning that we can take away from this text. So I want to invite you today to enter in to that state, that place of blessedness. And it starts by simply coming to Jesus and saying, I am an ungodly person. I am a sinner. I am lost without Jesus. And I confess that I have no righteousness of my own. And I want his righteousness by faith put into my account. I'm going to stop trusting in my wages, what I've earned and what I've deserved and what I merit. I'll never forget the day when a man came in to talk to my students about a year and a half ago. And he was explaining the doctrine of salvation to them. And my kids were listening. And they had the gospel of John under their belt. And this man then said, Every one of us are going to get exactly what we deserve. Isn't that great? (laughs) Amen, Mike. I don't want what I deserve. I want God's grace merited to my account. That is the blessedness. To know that I am forgiven. To know that God has covered over my sin, that he doesn't see them. To know that my sin is not being calculated and counted up. Psalm 103.3, I think. Sharon will check me. (laughs) She knows her Bible. Tell me if I'm wrong after the service. (laughs) It says, if God would mark iniquities on a chalkboard. We don't use chalkboards anymore. But anyway, if God was to mark them, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. I don't know where I was going with that, but that's the blessedness that you and I have. Let's pause and close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for your infinite grace. Thank you, God, that we don't get our wages, what we have earned, because the wages of sin is death. The gift, the grace of God is everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, today we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.